0: Hello and welcome. My name is Tom. This is the Enthusiasm Project, season three, episode one. And today, the number three is kind of all over the place. So we've got three years, three seasons, and three stories with three lessons. So we are kicking off season three here. If you listen to last week's episode, the season two finale, you know that that means everything and nothing at the same time. Uh, but. I wanted to do something today to kind of go into this next batch of episodes in a really positive, hopefully entertaining, and uh, beneficial way, and a really helpful way as well. So what I wanted to do was share a few personal stories that that I learned very specific lessons from, and not only are those lessons that are helpful in just navigating life as a human on the earth. But also in in attempting to be, you know, somebody who creates stuff and puts it out into the world. Uh, in my case, through YouTube, podcasts, that kind of thing, and of course, as a as a digital media teacher. And today is the day to do that because those three stories with those three lessons, as we premiere season three, the day that this podcast is being released uh, depends on when you're listening to this. But the day I'm putting it up to be released is June 29th, which is my three-year YouTube anniversary. Uh, it wasn't three years ago on June 29th that I uploaded my first video, but it was three years ago that I created the account, which is like, it's a free thing you can do in two seconds, so who cares if you don't actually you know do anything with that? But for me, getting to the point where I just clicked the buttons, created the account, put in the name, you know, put it all together, was a big first step, and then my first video went up on i believe it was july 11th so it was you know like a week and a half later i was like okay got a video up ready to go and then it just kind of went from there so that's just kind of a coincidence that i realized right before i was going to start recording this and i thought that was so cool and so serendipitous that i wanted to lean into it and just appreciate that a lot so we're kind of going (laughs) semi-chronologically and I, I was you know, thinking of these stories in my mind and trying to condense them as much as possible, but I like to contextualize also, so hopefully it's kind of clear where I'm going at. And one of them I hope doesn't cause any issues because uh, I I'll be talking about a previous job and I'll be very candid <laughs> about the situation, and you'll see what I mean when we get there. But to start off with, I want to take you all the way back to the year... <sighs> 2003, because my very first job was actually in 2001. Um, I was a freshman in high school and I got hired as an unpaid intern at a local TV station, our local ABC news affiliate. And I think when I sent them a letter, I mailed them a letter asking to be an intern because I had like barely learned what interns were and I was thinking of a career in like TV or film and you know, local TV station was the closest thing we had to those industries. And I sent them a letter in the mail in April of 2001. And I think when I said, I'm a freshman looking to be an intern, they assumed it was college. And then like nobody looked into it because in May of 2001, I went and did like a test run, like a ride along day, like a job shadow day, and then started interning in the summer And everybody else I was interning with were all college kids, and I was uh, not a college kid. And nobody really looked into it or questioned it. And it was supposed to be a summer internship. And it was really fun. It was a lot of, you know, there was like just grunt work of like, hey, catalog a thousand beta tapes from the past 15 years in this giant library and like organize these newspapers by month and date. And then there was cool stuff too, like going out in the field with photographers and reporters and you know, uh, being in the control room during broadcasts or doing little things around the studio. And I guess I just worked hard enough where at the end of summer, when all the other interns left, they asked if I wanted to stay on as like a weekend intern. And I ended up ended up working as an intern and in several paid positions at that TV station for like six years. (laughs) So it kind of went a lot longer than the two months I originally thought. But uh, 2003. So I had been there for two years. I started as like a news intern. And then I moved into the production department, which was great. They actually put together like a special internship just for me because I was interested in the production side of things and learning how everything worked behind the scenes. And that was great. Um, but obviously, like they're not letting me do the real, real intense stuff during the shows just because it would be irresponsible to put, I think I was 17 at the time, put this 17-year-old kid, you know, in charge of a broadcast or something. But I would help out with like audio graphics. I did the teleprompter like all the time. I would, you know, do some camera operating, stuff like that. Um, And then I would do editing and stuff where I had a little more time and there was a little more freedom to make some mistakes because you could fix them. But I never got to really direct. Sometimes I got to do audio a little bit. Anyway, At the time, and I don't know if this is the case because this was a long time ago, but at the time, basically my shift was evening, nighttime shift. So I would come in late afternoon, and then I would be there for the 5, 6, 10, and 11 o'clock news shows. So you kind of have like 5 and 6, those are almost back to back, and then 10 and 11 almost back to back. And then you have this break because 6 ends at 6.30, your next show doesn't start till 10.00. The 6 o'clock and the 10 o'clock shows most of the time were very similar because not a lot of news usually happened between those things. They'd be updated a little bit. But in general, that's when everyone's lunch breaks would be scheduled. And so the station would be kind of empty at those times. I didn't go anywhere for lunch, really. I just like brought stuff to eat there. And so what I would usually do is I would hang out in the control room and read the Futurama message board that I checked like every day. I remember this one day, it was like really leading up to it was like a week or two before the original series finale of Futurama, which I was very excited about. I was reading the message boards on my lunch break. And everybody else was gone. And they had gone to like a pizza place or something. And the thing is, (laughs) the way the TV station was at the time or managed, I don't know, because I was a kid and didn't really know that much about it. But it was essentially like you do what you do. And nobody cares as long as you get your job done. So The lunch break, which was, you know, 40 minutes or an hour would sometimes go three hours or more. Um, Sometimes people might have like, you know, treated themselves a little bit to a drink or two, and then come back after that. And nobody really cared as long as things got done when they needed to get done. And I, you know, just stayed at the TV station reading the Futurama message boards because that's what I do and that's the kind of person I am. But one day, I don't know why because it was late at night, so I'm actually not sure why the station manager was even there because normally he wouldn't be there at this time. But there was a police chase on like the local freeway, and this was you know again 2003, much closer to the time when TV stations love to televise stuff like police chases and, and things like that, which they don't broadcast as often anymore. But there was this chase. They wanted to cut in and do a live thing. So they got like, okay, here's, you know, the one of the news anchors was like hanging out. Okay, get them in the studio. We can point a camera at him, We don't even need anyone behind the camera. I remember I was sitting at the computer in the control room, reading the future Hummer message board and the station manager came in. He's like, where is everyone? We need to go on air for breaking news right now. And there's nobody else in the control room except for me. And I was like, I, I think they're all still out at, at lunch. And he looked at me and it was like a moment from a movie where like everything you know everything leads up to like the hero taking the reins and like proving themselves and he was like you do you know how to direct and I said no because I didn't and the director's board was really confusing it was uh you know there's a million buttons on it and the order that you have to push things to get the the graphics and get him to take the pre-programmed thing off the air and cut into it. I just didn't know how to, I probably could have figured it out. I think I could have, which is kind of where we're going to get to with the lesson. But I con- couldn't confidently say that I knew how. And I said no. And he was like, I could see his frustration. But at the same time, he couldn't really be mad at like the 17-year-old intern who didn't know how to do a job that there's no reason he would have been trained to do. And so he just kind of got frustrated and they just scrubbed the idea And I think a bunch of people got yelled at when they came back from their extended lunches. Uh, What that was, though, is that was one of those times. uh, That was one of those times where if I, I can just imagine if he was like, can you direct? If I had just said yes and jumped in, what is the worst that could happen? Because I'm not incompetent. Like I had been at that station for a long time. You know, I worked very part time. It's not like I was doing full time for years or anything, but I had been there enough I had observed enough. I had you know, poked around on my own time enough a little bit. I feel like for what they were asking, which was literally simple graphics, one camera angle, you know, basic audio, like just push the audio slider up and leave it there. You don't even need someone running audio. I feel like I could have made it work. And it might have been sloppy and there might have been some mistakes, but it would have it would have gotten done if I had just been confident enough to say yes. I don't know where that would have led. It's not like, oh, it would have led to the glamour of local news or something, but it would have been kind of cool instead of just saying no. And then just everybody's like energy just deflates and it, the night is over. Like I could have in a way like saved the day, you know, in a very low stakes situation. And what that taught, that taught me two things, because first As much as I was like, oh, you know, everyone is taking a break and they're going out to lunch, so I'll take a break and hang out here. I did have what was essentially free reign over this television station. And what I should have been doing more of was taking advantage of that. Like, I, you know, I'm very timid. I don't want to get in trouble or mess anything up. But if I'm in the control room instead of reading the Futurama message board, maybe I should have even just like without touching, just looking at the audio boards, looking at the director's boards looking at the model number of the director's board, looking up, there wasn't, YouTube wasn't around at the time, but looking up like the manual for it or quick tips on it or something, just from websites, reviews, whatever, where I could kind of figure out some of the basics of this equipment, of this gear, how it all works, how it's set up. That would have been probably a better use of my time than just reading message boards. And so I realized from then on, like really take advantage of these opportunities. Like if you're here, if I'm spending my time to be there, whether it's paid or not, you know, like absorb everything that you can because you never know how it's going to pay off in the future. And then it was also a huge lesson for me in not something that I necessarily picked up right away, but the importance of confidence and just jumping into things. So it took me a lot longer to, to be comfortable doing that. But that was one of the first concrete times where I realized later that kind of like i just said there wouldn't have been really a negative consequence there's nothing i would have done that would have like gotten me in trouble had i said yes and jumped in like the director's chair and pushed the buttons and made the broadcast happen maybe a couple sloppy mistakes cuts at the wrong time or whatever not really a big deal uh i should have had the confidence to just go for it and just try because what's the word that Worse, they're going to have a a sloppy broadcast, but they're going to have their their cutting, breaking news thing that they really wanted, as opposed to nothing, and that would be better than nothing. And plus, as I said, I know that I'm a more competent person than I was giving myself credit for being. Had I just jumped in, I would have probably been able to do a decent job, and it probably would have been just fine. And then if nothing else it would have just been a cool time that i was able to step up and help a you know help a team at an important moment it could have also been you know just a way to sort of be looked at a little differently and maybe different opportunities would have presented themselves or been afforded to me because i had proven that later and that those those are kind of the main lessons i learned from that story but that really helped coming into the world of creating my own stuff for a couple reasons. Because first, just taking advantage of things like learning as much as you can about everything, even when you're not sure where it's going to fit in the future has always been beneficial to me. And so just continuing to do that, you never know when the knowledge you have is going to come in handy. But just jumping in, I mean, that's, as you might know, if you've been listening to for a while, uh, on my YouTube channel, my like Roadcaster Pro and podcasts and microphone related videos have been really popular lately, especially during quarantine, because so many people are starting podcasts and starting their own thing. And that's awesome. And I love it. I'm so excited to hear all the stories of people who are starting their own things. But I've also been getting so many emails and messages from people, which I'm more than happy to to get and to respond to as best I can. But from people who want to start something and almost like it's like they are clearly talking themselves out of it or stopping themselves and they'll you know they'll talk send me a thing and say I love this video I'm so excited I ordered the roadcaster I want to order it or whatever um I want to start a show great awesome fantastic but I can't because of this reason and I say oh well if that's your reason you can fix that with this or you can overcome it by doing this or have you thought about handling it this way and like yeah I can do that but then this okay well cool if you Fix that, then this. Oh, but if I do that and they're just no matter what I say, even if it were like, why don't I just send you every piece of equipment and build a soundproof studio for you and clear your calendar for the next three months so you have nothing else to worry about. I'll pay all your bills too. So you have nothing in the world to worry about except making your show. They would still give me an excuse as to why they couldn't do it. And a lot of that is because people want things to be perfect and they want things to be well thought out before they start it. And that just will never happen. And if that's what you're waiting for, the thing you want to do will never happen. And so ironically, what, what I've learned from wanting things to be good and perfect is the importance of accepting that they're never going to be perfect, perfect, and to just jump in because there's no way you can get better if you haven't gotten started. And I would much rather jump in and have a rough sounding show. I just actually found... The other day, the recording of my very first podcast stuff, and there's so much that I don't like about the way that it sounds, and so much that I think sounds better now in every capacity. But I wouldn't have been able to improve at all had I not started and recorded those shows when I did. And it didn't matter that they weren't perfect, and it didn't matter that I wasn't necessarily quote-unquote ready at the time. It was the thing I needed to do to get started. That was where Heather jump-kicked my YouTube channel and was like, She essentially gave me permission to just make YouTube videos. And then I jumped in before I felt that I was totally ready. But that was the thing I needed to do in order to get ready. So that's it took me way longer than I would have liked to learn that. But that feeling of like, I think I could do this, but I know it won't be perfect. So I'm just going to say no and sit out. I don't like that feeling. And I like to think that knowing what I know now, if I were to go back in time... And that situation presented itself. And the station manager was like, hey, can you direct? Even if I wasn't 100% confident in my ability, I would say, yes, jump in, figure it out on the fly, maybe make a couple mistakes. It's no harm, no foul. It's not like we're working in a brain surgery unit and someone's coming in. Can you figure out like this super complex procedure? And I'm like, yeah, I'll wing it. The brain is in the head, right? Like this. this was not a life or death situation should have just jumped in and gone for it. And that was a really important lesson to learn. Wish I had learned it and put it into action sooner. With that in mind, let's jump ahead now from 2003 to 2017, when I was, what was I, 31 years old now, instead of 17 years old, Um, and still learning the value of trying to just put yourself out there. So 2017 was in a lot of ways a really tough year for me personally but it ended up being one of the best years of my life and I have so many just fond memories and like emotional feelings that come up when I think of 2017. Obviously you know that was when I started my YouTube channel which is very transformative and even more transformative that was the year that I met Heather and we started you know working together and then eventually we started like being in a relationship together, and now we are married (laughs) together. So that was also very transformative. And that whole thing, I've talked about that story a few times. Well, a lot of times, actually. And I can't even keep track of it because it's been like on the podcast on my channel, on Heather's channel, on Heather's podcast. Like, we've told this story a few times, but it's so interesting how we met on YouTube. And, you know, the reason that we met, though, I was, I'll take credit for it, the one who reached out first, mostly because she didn't know I existed. If she did, maybe she would have reached out first. But what really happened was, twenty. I had been watching YouTube for many, many years, like like many people. Uh, but 2017 was really where I was watching it in a different way. I was really watching with the, the mindset of, I think I do want to jump in and do this. And that's where on June 29th it got to a point where I was like, I I do want to do this. I'm going to create the account. It didn't go beyond creating the account, but it it was there. It registered a brand new Gmail account. Got you know the YouTube channel set up. It's totally blank, but it's there. In theory, I could have pressed upload and uploaded a video. I just had no videos to upload. But the step of getting started was already there. And that was June 29th, 2017. It wasn't until, oh, I for, actually forget the the exact date. It was either very late July or early August. I had spent that summer making a couple videos. I made my first YouTube video. I kind of made just a random spattering of like maybe five other videos that were, you know, everything from getting your drone license to 3D printing tests to uh rebuilding the broadcast set in my high school classroom just sort of things that were happening me getting comfortable making stuff that wasn't perfect me getting comfortable being in front of the camera and just sort of sharing something creative really simple um but really important to kind of get those videos out under my belt at the same time i'm consuming a ton of youtube and i'm also looking into i want to get a boosted board i want to go to iceland Uh, I want to, you know, learn more about YouTube and suddenly, you know, I'm looking at Boosted Board Reviews and Heather has a Boosted Board Review, which was the first video that I consciously (laughs) saw from her, although I had seen she also had gone to Iceland like the year before and she did an Iceland Packing Tips video that I had watched several weeks prior when I booked my trip to Iceland it was 2017, I booked a trip in the, for the summer of 2018 to go. And after that, I was like, okay, what do I need? Like, I'm gonna look up these packing tips, videos, and travel tips, and Heather had a video. She knows how to do SEO really well, so it was ranking really high. I found it, I watched it, it was cool. And then a couple of weeks later, looking at Boosted Board, found her Boosted Board review. I didn't realize it was the same person, but after I watched the Boosted Board review video, YouTube automatically recommended one of her other vlogs where she was talking about quitting her job, and focusing on like digital media and digital media literacy, and it was just all these things. It was literally like stuff that I had heard for years in my work at my job, but I never heard outside of it. And it was like it was almost like the feeling of hearing the punchline to an inside joke somewhere else in the world. And you're like, how do you how do you know about this? And at that point, I literally don't think I had ever left a YouTube comment. But having watched heather's videos and stories i wanted to leave a comment that essentially was just like what you're doing is great and i le- i she has the comment and you know i don't have it here but it basically just introduced myself and i was like oh my name is tom I'm a high school digital media teacher like what we're doing is you know very similar like it's great that you're doing this it's hugely important like way to go that kind of thing and i didn't know how youtube comments worked and for whatever reason, I just felt that it was really important. I mean, I felt like I had gone out of my way, put myself out there just to leave a comment, which now I'll leave like, you know, 20 comments a day on videos that I watch. But at the time, it was a big deal to leave one. And I didn't know, like, can the person who posted the video see the comment? Do they get notified? Like, do I get notified if they reply? You know, what if she replied and I, I just miss it and I just leave? will not that be super rude? And I don't know why I, like, was so in my head about it. But you know, like I said, it was something new. And then I was also thinking at the time, I was getting so jaded with kind of, for lack of a better term, like local, just the local community. And that sounds more negative than I mean. But having done, you know, digital media stuff and just living in the place that I live for my whole life, it's small. And you know, I'm trying to build this new digital media program, I'm trying to do different things. I'm kind of struggling to find like business partners and industry partners to help with my classes. And I know there's people I can reach out to, but I know they're the same people that get reached out to by every school in the area. And a lot of them, you know, are retired and they've been out of, not out of work, but they've, they haven't they have been actively working for 10 or 20 years. And that's great to share the experience, but it's a very different perspective from somebody who's, you know, actively in it and a little bit younger and and more kind of in tune with the current things like YouTube and MySpace and whatnot. And that was sort of where Heather was, and we have to do part of my program at school is we have to have industry advisory councils where we have working professionals come in and provide their input on what we teach the students, what equipment they use, what software they learn, just to make sure that the stuff they're learning in the classroom is actually going to help them if they were interested in pursuing a career in that field. And we have to have those meetings like twice a year, or at least people providing input. So I thought, oh, you know what, instead of using the same local people that every school uses, what if I asked this Heather girl to be an industry partner. She doesn't have to like do anything other than maybe twice a year. Like I give her an update on what's going on. She gives me feedback on what we should and shouldn't be focusing on with the students. That would be awesome because it'd be a totally different perspective from a totally outside source. And so I decided, okay, I don't know if she's gonna read this comment. I'll send her an email. So I emailed her to like follow up on the comment, which now being like in Heather's shoes, could be a really annoying thing sometimes if it's not done well, where someone leaves comments and sends an email and it can feel like a little much. Um, But fortunately, I guess I walked the line fine enough where she replied and then we got to know each other. And that was when she learned about my program, wanted to come visit the whole thing and everything kind of took off from there. But it all started with not just even being like, I don't say brave enough, brave enough to leave a YouTube comment, but like brave enough to reach out to somebody to put myself out there and then to even follow up on that, asking some asking something of someone. Because it's one thing to say, hey, what you're doing is amazing. I love it. It's great. Awesome. Who doesn't love getting that message? You don't have to do anything. You just get complimented. It's terrific. But now I'm reaching out to a stranger and asking something from them. Hey, this is what I do. This is where I need help. Would you be willing to help me, help me with it in this way? It, it was a minimal commitment. So I felt kind of comfortable because of that. But I, I'm someone who doesn't doesn't find it easy to ask for help with anything. And so that was a big deal. And then Heather, of course, responded hugely positively. And what that taught me was that it is okay to put yourself out there. And believe it or not, you can actually have worth. And the things that you're doing not only can be worthwhile, but can be interesting to other people. Because then when Heather came and saw like my classroom and my program, she was blown away by it. And that's and then she saw the studio that I had just built. And she knew I was like interested-ish in YouTube, but didn't know where to get started. And that's when she was like, why aren't you making YouTube videos? And I was like, oh me, like who would want to, you know, watch a YouTube video? And she was like, look at all the stuff you're doing. Look at everything you know. Look at like the experience that you have. Are you kidding me? Like that's a perfect recipe for someone who should have a YouTube channel. And, you know, for someone who'd been kind of kicking it around a little bit, that was a big deal to have someone I respected give me that kick and, and in a way give me permission like yeah I'm someone you look up to and I'm saying this is a great thing and you should absolutely do it really meant something to me and then got me started and you know as i've said before my only regret with getting started on like having a youtube channel is that i didn't get started sooner so that was huge that was a huge moment and it all started with being confident enough and able enough to just put myself out there even just a little bit and ask for somebody to be involved included in some small way in something I was doing doesn't mean everybody you ask is going to be able to be involved in your thing. But even if she had said no, just the fact that I got to a point where I was like, this is what I do. I think it's worth your time. I think it's worth considering. It has value. It's valid. What do you think Getting to that point where you're able to say that and present that is huge. And then once you do that a few times, you get more and more comfortable with it. And it just kind of builds from there. And now, you know, I have quite a bit of confidence in the stuff that I do. And, I, and I'm fine if people say no to stuff. I'm happy if they say yes to stuff. But I know that there's value in it, that it's interesting and it's neat and it's different. And I'm comfortable admitting that when I need to and reaching out to people when I need to. Obviously not in a boastful or like braggadocious way, but just in a practical way that's going to let me keep working towards the stuff that I want to do. And I can only imagine how I would have felt if I had the confidence again to do that earlier, as opposed to being 31 years old, which I'm glad I learned it then instead of now. But had I figured that out even sooner, it would have been even better. And so bringing that into the idea that you have worth and value and are worth something takes me into the last story that I wanted to share today, which, uh, so let's see, I'll just jump into it as best I can. Basically, when I was in college, I, I always worked, I did community college to state school. So my schooling wasn't crazy expensive when it comes to, you know, higher education. And then I did my, teaching credential and my graduate degree um, after that, and another teaching credential after that. So a lot of years at school, but started just at community college, and then going to um, Cal State. The thing is, which I didn't realize people didn't do, so I don't know, I just, it seemed normal to me, was I worked the whole time I went to school, and I didn't realize how many people don't work when they go to school, which is great if you're able to go through school and not work, you know, more power to you. But I, once I started working at the TV station that I mentioned when I was 15, I basically never stopped working. I kind of worked, you know, sometimes I'd have a lot of hours and sometimes I'd work very part time, you know, throughout high school. Getting into college, though, a lot of times I was working two jobs. I was interning at the TV station and like working, you know, somewhere like Target or a grocery store or, or whatever, a video store. I ended up having a lot of jobs. Uh, I think I've added it up and it's like 17 jobs, but it's not really because of flakiness. It's just because of a lot of times they overlap. It's more than one job at a time. Sometimes they're seasonal things. Like I did work at Target seasonally. So from a holiday, you know, from like Thanksgiving to Valentine's Day, they hire on extra crew because it's busier. And at the end of that, you know, you can stay on or you can leave if you want. And I just chose, oh, I'll leave and go do something else. I don't really want to work at Target anymore. Not that there was anything wrong with it. It was just not what I wanted to do as a 17-year-old and I was still interning at the TV station. For most of my undergrad college experience, I worked as a sign artist at Trader Joe's, which is still probably... like My teaching job is so good and it's so unique and it's such a, like a career job. It clearly has to be my favorite job. But Trader Joe's sign artist... Is real close. It's right there, especially for the pay is pretty darn good. I mean, I I worked there from 2006 to 2010, and by the time I left, I was making sixteen dollars and twenty five cents an hour, which in 2010 minimum wage is way below ten dollars an hour. That's I mean that was a ton of money, and at least when I worked there. Again, it's been ten years since I left, but. When I worked there, you only had to work twenty one hours a week, which was three basically three shifts a week and you qualified for health insurance so I had good pay health insurance they had you know a system to give you paid time off that you kind of like accrued hours into and you could take from it whenever you needed to and it's a fun job and I wasn't even doing the grocery store part of it I was doing art and design, and we were you know I was working with these incredible artists i I kind of like weaseled my way in a little bit because there was this weird brief period. Trader Joe's does all of their signs by by hand in all of their stores. And every store is a little different. Every store has its own theme. You know, the company has its general vibe. But every store is unique and has their own sign artists. And I believe that's still how it works now, which is amazing. And I mean, stuff is hand-painted, hand-lettered. That's a big part of it. There was a time in 2006 where they were like thinking of doing some stuff digitally. Photoshop, Illustrator, whatnot. And that's where I kind of like, whoop, just sort of snuck in a little bit because I was like, hey, I got the, you know, here's my Photoshop portfolio. I can do all this stuff. Like, yeah, I can do, I can really help you do great work with shelf signs and design and all these things. And then of course they're like, oh no, this isn't our thing at all. We want everything done by hand. And I had now was stuck kind of having to learn how to do all that. <laughs> and I really didn't know, but I was fortunate enough to work with all these, really incredible artists that all had such different styles. And for four and a half years, you know, seven hours a day, basically, my job was to go do art and get paid for it. And I always look at it as getting paid to go to art school, because that's basically what it was they would even Trader Joe's would even let us go sometimes to visit other stores, like if there was an exceptional sign artist or team at another store, we could spend the day with pay going and visiting them and kind of shadowing them and just seeing their process, seeing what tools that they need, you know, if we needed to remodel our little closet sign room thing that we had, we could spend the day going to Trader Joe's and buying stuff to build new desks and easels and, you know, reorganizing stuff. And it was just so fun. Pretty much everything I know how to do in terms of power tools and building and all that kind of stuff, I learned from that job. And there'd be weird times where I'd spend, I remember there was like two or three days one summer that I spent just cutting, burning, and staining big bamboo poles, just sitting in the back of the grocery store, just cutting up these poles into huge, like, huge sections, because we were basically making what kind of look like street signs for like, all whatever 15 of the cash registers. And figuring out like, okay, I need to cut them, they need to be this size, this is, you know, tie rope around it. So it looks very islandy. And okay, now I need to burn them. So let's go get torches and burning bamboo isn't as simple as it seems and then once it's burned it looks all dried out and funky so you gotta like stain it and finish it and then seal it to protect it and like learn like what a weird thing to have to learn and figure out but how fun to figure that kind of stuff out and that's more or less I mean what that kind of job was and some of the artwork you do would be these tiny little signs that go on the shelf next time you're in a Trader Joe's just look at every shelf sign they're all handwritten and you get to do like goofy little sayings on them which is kind of fun and then you also have the big signs. You have these huge, you know. You might have a mural on the wall. You might have, you know, just a, a sign that's like two feet by four feet. I think was kind of our most common sized sign. You're working with spray paint. You're working with paint markers, traditional acrylics, everything. You're working. That's where I learned how to, about how to do resin on tabletops and stuff. I mean, it really was probably a better education than you would get at many art schools. And I didn't have to pay for it. I got paid to do it. So hugely positive situation 10 years on i use so much of what i learned at that job every single day and i look back at it as pretty much one of my favorite jobs i'm saying that because i'm going to say a couple of things that sound kind of negative and i'm just going to be very straightforward with it so <laughs> there's a lesson to be had in this which is trader joe's as a company prides itself on being a good place to work And I think that it is a good place to work. And I would still recommend that people work there. And part of that is they have a great culture. It's a very fun, friendly place. Um, They know what they do. Like grocery stores are important. But they know that it's, you know, they know they're like kind of a kitschy Hawaiian, like cheesy. They lean into that very well. And so they don't seem to take themselves too seriously. They pay their employees really well. They give their employees benefits. I was making sixteen twenty five an hour as a sign artist, but if you go into a management position or a supervisory role, you get paid, I mean, easily like a career salary. And many people do make it their careers, turnover is really low. Like you can, you know, people stay there for decades. And so it's it's a great place to work. And it's a national chain. It's super easy to transfer between stores. So if you move to a different state or something, you can just transfer to another store. It's, it's awesome. It's a great place to to work. But I started where I worked there from 2006, from September 2006 to December 2009. 2008, right in the middle, the economy crashed. And one thing that happened, so I'm going to speak very locally. Uh, Our region, which is not just my area, there's like three, three Trader Joe's in my immediate like community, but our region is a relatively big space. I think it's upwards of like 22 stores. And so, you know, it probably takes a couple hours to drive from one end of the region to the other. You know, I don't know how many miles that is, but it, it's a lot of like Southern California communities. Our region got a new regional manager in the midst of the Great Recession. And I don't know, I don't know anything beyond that. We got this regional manager. And what she was known for was being very cutthroat. And what she did was all of the people who had been at their stores for a long time, she would kind of move in, either let them go or involuntarily transfer them and then replace them with like her selected people. And what that means is for somebody who, you know, is an adult in their late 40s, early 50s, been working at this company for 20 years, And, you know, maybe they're transferring throughout like the three stores locally. So now they're working 15 minutes from home. And then for a few years, they're working five minutes from home. And now 20 minutes, like just kind of that region to suddenly be told, oh, on Monday, you're going to be working at this store. It's an hour and a half away. You don't have any kind of say in it. Obviously, that doesn't work for a lot of people now making a three hour commute on top of their already 10 hour workday. And the regional manager knew that wouldn't work and knew that what people would do is leave. And so that was kind of something they would do to push people out. And I saw it happen repeatedly. And it was very, very sad. And then the managers that she would install would basically be people who had no attachment to the local area or those people or those stores. And it would be just kind of like either pushing people out. It was, it was a lot of just pushing people out. The people who stayed on clearly proved that they were willing to tolerate whatever they were, however they were being treated, and then just kind of cutthroat. And it was it was a lot of really shady tactics that happened, honestly. It was a lot of stuff like, in addition to involunt- involuntary transfers, it was like, you know, someone who had been working eight years at, from the 4 a.m. to noon shift and had built their whole life about it, you know has family and kids and all their schedules are based on the idea that I work these days a week, these hours, would suddenly have their whole thing upended. Now they're working nights. Now they're working the middle of the day. Sometimes they're working morning. Oh, you're working five days a week. Sorry, next week you're working two days a week. Like, oh, you need 21 hours to get health insurance. We're going to schedule you 19 hours this week and then you're going to lose your health insurance. Like those kinds of things happening, which again, is going to make people kind of want to leave because you can't, it just doesn't work. And I saw that happening and it was really, it was really negative. It was like a really dark time to go from how happy (laughs) our work environment was to how tense and unhappy it was. Fortunately, we were relatively safe in the little sign world, like the art world. But what I noticed were a lot of people were saying like that they were getting targeted, like, oh, they don't like me. They're trying to get rid of me. And at first, I thought they were just saying that because, you know, who hasn't heard like a kid in school say, oh, the teacher just doesn't like me. Like, it's like, maybe you just didn't study for the test. But in this case, I saw it happen enough that and that I believe it was true. And the thing that really confirmed it was when it happened to me. And let's see if I can give some examples here. So I'll start with a friend's example. I had a friend who was a sign artist at another local store. She got one of these new managers put in by the new regional manager who was just, you know, trying to push people out. And what it seemed like was as soon as you hit $16 an hour, they'd push you out. So you get these glowing reviews, you get these raises. As soon as you hit that limit, that's when suddenly like things would shift. You could do nothing right. You would get written up like crazy. And then you would either get fired because you were so incompetent or you would just get so stressed out that you would leave because it was a nightmare to work there. And so one of my friends did, She was a sign artist, had worked there for, I don't know, five years at this point, had never been late. In fact, like whatever the earliest was you could clock in for your shift, I think it's like five minutes. She'd always clock in like five minutes early, whatever the the limit was. The other sign artist at that store had a habit of being late every day, like 15 or 20 minutes and never seemed to get written up about it. But my friend was getting kind of like not written up, which you can only get written up three times and then you're let go. But she was getting kind of reprimanded. Like there was one day she clocked in two minutes early instead of five. And they were like, be careful about your attendance. Don't come in late. It's like I'm still early. (laughs) I'm not late. And so one day what she did got to work the normal like 15 minutes early, but just sat in the parking lot and then clocked in two minutes late and got written up within 30 minutes. And then the coworker that same day came in twenty minutes late, no write up, and that's where it was like, okay, clearly like something is not being applied evenly here. And I heard that story, and it really made my heart sink. And then I had a review, and I got up to sixteen dollars an hour, and I was very happy about that. And then suddenly, things started changing. I just noticed like there, there was sort of this strange thing where. Like we would be given a project, okay, you need to re-sign this whole area. You need to make these huge displays. Okay, great. Um, But we're going to also now assign you to work like a cash register for one hour here and two hours there throughout your shift. And it's like, well, now like the thing you're asking me to do is going to take seven hours. But now you're only giving me three hours a day to do it. And they're broken up at these odd times. So I can't actually like, you know, we're dealing with art and paint. It takes time to set up. It takes time to clean up. There's no way, like you're kind of setting me up for failure because I can't actually finish this job you're trying to get me to do in the time that you're giving me to do it. And fortunately, like operating a cash register is not really too miserable. It's kind of a fun job. But it's not the thing that I wanted to do there. But it was, you know, I'll put up with it. We did that for like several months. It was just sort of a weird thing of you guys are giving us projects to do and then you're like sabotaging us from being able to do them. But whatever. One day <laughs> I came into work. And my first thing every morning was that I would walk the store, I usually work 6am to 2pm. And so I would get in at 6am, I'd grab a clipboard, I would walk the store and I would just make note of anything that's missing, or anything that's new that had been put out overnight that needed signage. And sometimes it'd be small shelf signs, sometimes they'd be big display signs, you know, I would just get a list of everything I would put the barcode put the prices so I had all the info. And then I would just get to work on making those signs and getting things out. And that's what I was doing. And then maybe, I don't know, an hour after I got into work, one of my friends who I'd known for years who had moved into a management position, she was like an assistant manager, came in with like a higher, I guess she was an assistant assistant manager who then came in with the assistant manager. And they said, hey, Tom, can we go talk to you out back? Which is never good if people come in and they want to do that. It's never a good thing. And I was like, okay. And so we went out and they, and the assistant manager was literally standing behind my friend who was like the assistant assistant and just sitting. and I could tell like you had taken this person who you knew I was close with and you put them in this this position that they couldn't get out of. And so anyway, my friend goes, we need to write you up for insubordination. I was like, I, I had never gotten anything less than like literally perfect reviews at this point for four years. So I was kind of like, how, where am I being insubordinate? Uh, And she was like, well, I told you that there were products that need signs. There were four signs and they're not out. And you chose to do other things instead of that. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) let's talk about this real quick. Because I guess what had happened was after I had left at 2 p.m. that day, maybe I think it was like three o'clock, there had been like new product displays that were built and they needed signs. And so the assistant manager like left the info on the desk in the sign room which I was wasn't there to get because I stopped working my shift was over and then when I came in in the morning my thing was to walk the store so even though I didn't actually see her list that she gave me I had walked the store and I had already seen those items so I saw they were new they were already on my list they were going to get taken care of there was literally working on them at that time and I was like, okay, okay, like, you know, these were things that were done after I like left yesterday. So I didn't even know about them. Um, and then I said, you know, I'm confused about why I'm being written up for this because there are, other, we had four sign artists. And I was like, why wasn't this just given to the sign artist that was working last night? And then the higher up manager said, you just want to throw your coworkers under the bus like that? And I was like, no, 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 I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. I'm just saying if I wasn't here... Why was that put, you know, why wasn't that given to the person who was here? And they said, that doesn't matter. The fact is you were you were told to do something and you didn't do it, and you came in this morning, and you didn't do it. And I was like, I came in this morning, I'm doing the thing that I do every morning, which does include this. And here's the thing. At that point, what we're talking about is that our store with thousands and thousands of products was missing four signs. I can pretty confidently guarantee you that no other store in our region was that fully signed because typically stuff changes and stuff gets lost and only missing four signs is like we should have honestly been given like an award for that and instead i'm being written up for it and that felt very strange because i could clearly see that no matter what what i did what i said what reasons there were there was nothing i could do like they were there to write me up, so that they could then write me up again, and then write me up again. And so I said, "Okay, I mean, I guess, I guess you're right. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll go make those right now." And they said, "Okay, we need to write you up. You know, you need to sign this paper." And I was like, "I'm really uncomfortable with how this is being handled. What happens if I don't sign the paper?" <laughs> and they said, um, "Well, you still it still goes on your record. We still send it in, but it's just going to be a lot more paperwork for us." And I was like, "Okay, let's do that then, because I'm not going to sign this." Which, you know, probably doesn't bode well for me, but I was very mad at the time because it's kind of a dumb thing. And anyway, so a few months go by, uh, maybe like two months go by, and one day I walk into work just like normal. Things have been just kind of like that kind of pressure and negativity had just been sort of building since then. And then I walked in one day, clocked in, sort of looked at the day's schedule And I wasn't assigned to work in the sign room. I was assigned to work on like the non-perishables section, which includes like beverages and juices and stuff, which I had never done before. And that means like, I don't have any idea how to do this stuff. And it's 6am, the store opens in two hours. And I was like, what is this? And I walked over and there's like four pallets of like juice products that I needed to break down and stock and... That, doesn't, that sounds silly because you're like, oh, you're just putting juice on shells. But what we're talking about are each pallet is thousands of pounds. And to to break them down, you need to use like these big forklift things that I'm not trained on. I have a friend who literally had half of his foot cut off because he like used one wrong and he had been experienced with it. So I was a little nervous to try that stuff. I didn't even have a box cutter. Like I wasn't, I was not prepared to do this. I didn't have like computer logins to deal with inventory and barcodes and whatever. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was randomly assigned. There with like no training or no explanation. It was just sort of on the list. And I thought it was a mistake. And some other like floor worker was assigned to my job. And so I went back and I talked to her and I was like, oh, are you doing like signs today? And she's like, yeah, I don't know why. I was like, huh. And this was about a month before I was going to start student teaching, which meant that I was going to be working basically full-time as a teacher without pay. (laughs) And I knew that I probably wouldn't be able to keep up my normal Trader Joe's schedule. So I was thinking like, I'm going to have to talk to them about, you know, switching my days or reducing my hours or something. Or like, I don't know, maybe I can't even keep working. So I was also, also working as a substitute teacher. The thing with me is I always had like multiple jobs. So I'd like... My typical day during the Trader Joe's time would be get up at 4.30, get to Trader Joe's by six because I didn't live super close to my store, work from six to two, Uh, several days a week. My college classes were actually an hour and a half away because I kind of like split my class load between a main campus and a satellite campus. So I took a lot of main campus classes, which were far away, but that was so I could get done with the program faster. And so I'd have to go to class at four, you know, an hour and a half away, and the class went from four to eight usually, and then drive an hour and a half home, get home, go to sleep, kind of do the same thing the next day. A lot of times when I had the local classes, which would be like six to ten p.m., I would work Trader Joe's six to two, and then I would work in, as a writing tutor in like the writing center that my school had um, from three to six or it was like two to five. It was a couple hours before class started and there was like a little time to get dinner or whatever and then go to six to ten PM class. So that's a lot of like that's just a lot. <laughs> you know, that's a busy schedule. I don't really know how I survived that. Um, you know, where there's like years long periods where you have no day off and your closest thing to a day off is when you're only going to work or school. But the reason I say that is because that's where I was like and then at this point, I was also substitute teaching because I, I wanted to get classroom experience as I was like working in my teaching program. So before I started student teaching, I was substitute teaching and working at Trader Joe's and going to school. And I knew that I couldn't do all of those things once I started student teaching, which is really full time and, and kind of a grueling process. Anyway, long story extra long. Once I was assigned to the this juice section, that's where I was like, you know, this was December 1st, 2010. I think today's probably the day that I just need to quit because it's very clear what their intentions are here. They're setting me up for failure. I'm not going to be able to do this by the time the store opens. They're going to write me up for not doing this. They're just going to keep assigning me here. I have to watch like, you know, somebody else fumble around in my position like doing, you know, no, it's just clearly not a good fit. Um, And so I walked over and they did this weird thing. So I asked the, the actual store manager was there who was just this dude, they called him the shark, because he never stopped moving. And he was like a predator. Well, <laughs> predator sounds bad. But I mean, like, he literally would just, you know, just get people to quit. That was literally why he was brought into stores was to get people to quit. Um, and that's what he was doing to me because I, I guess probably was making 16 bucks an hour and they wanted to move in someone who was making $11 an hour to my position, save that money. And I told him like, what is going on here? And like, yeah, we just, we need to train other people um, in that position. And I'm like, well, but the other person didn't ask to be trained. I wasn't communicated to about this at all. I haven't been trained in my new position, I guess. Um, And so I told him I was going to leave. And then they did the weirdest thing since it was the middle of a pay period They paid me out in just an envelope of cash, which was so confusing. And it was almost like, please never come back. Here's literally just an envelope of cash with some coins in it that like equals the pay that you're owed for this pay period. Please leave. It was so bizarre. I still don't quite understand what that was about. Uh, And it seems very shady right now. And so that was how I quit Trader Joe's. Um, And that kind of sucked. Fortunately, the stuff I learned at Trader Joe's, I took with me uh, because it's all like art stuff. And so it lives in my brain and in, you know, in my experience. But that was kind of devastating to know, oh, wow, I just spent four and a half years here and was just, without even a second thought, just, you know, essentially asked to leave or intimidated to leave, whatever you want to call it. And... Before I get to kind of what the lesson is there, I do want to say that the regional manager I spoke of and the store managers, none of them work for Trader Joe's anymore. None of them have worked there for years. So I don't know what the whole deal was in terms of like corporate stuff there. I have a feeling the like corporate corporate offices were just seeing, wow, this region is like reducing costs and increasing profits in a time of recession. That's amazing. Good job, you guys. Not questioning like, wait, how are you doing that? It shouldn't really be possible and so I don't think it's it was like a company policy. I think it was it was really kind of located to our region. Luckily, there are still some people I know who work at Trader Joe's who still work there, um, work there before I started, still work there. They seem happy. So it seems like it's kind of gone back to being a more positive place to be, at least again, in my region. And that makes me happy. So I would still recommend it as a place. I still have hugely fond memories and I still learned so so much um, that I can that I can use there and I was fortunate enough to be in a position where the skills I learned were applicable elsewhere because here's the lesson what I saw happen a lot was people getting really invested into Trader Joe's and so you might have someone who is in their 40s you know family kids the whole deal mortgage payment and they're in a supervisory role making, you know, low six figures a year, and suddenly now being transferred involuntarily or just being let go and not having much else to be able to do. Um, Because a lot of that starts when people are young. So if you jump into Trader Joe's, and you're 20, 21 years old, and you're going to school, and you're working here, and the pay is pretty good, and you know, it seems really fun and you have the opportunity to move into a management position and like a starting manager's role was like 80 or $85,000 a year. And it just goes up from there. You have to work a minimum of 50 hours a week. And you know, you, it's kind of grueling, but people seem to really enjoy it if they get into it. And especially when you're younger Why would you, I mean, oh my God, like I could go to school and like rack up student debt or I could take this position at like a quirky grocery store and make high five figures in a couple of years, start maybe in the seventies and very quickly jump into six figures. Like why wouldn't I want to do that? And then the problem is you find yourself having been there for a long time, something happens and you, you either leave or you're let go. What do you do? Because you've invested in this company and, you know, you might be great at what you do, but in terms of your resume and your portfolio, like you could get a job at another grocery store, but you're going to start at the bottom. Very few of them pay what Trader Joe's paid. So you're not going to, you're going to take like a 60% pay cut or more. That's kind of terrifying. And I saw that happen so much where people would give up on other things, specifically education. That's what I saw a lot. People in their twenties, stop going to school, jump into a management role, and then it doesn't work out a lot. And now they haven't finished school and they've lost their management position. You know, they'll buy a house, they'll do all this stuff when they get the salary and then it disappears and they're not, they don't know what to do. What it taught me was the importance of always making sure to invest in yourself and never invest fully into somebody else's thing, period. And that means you can be a great employee. Like I personally right now am, you know, I build a high school digital media program at my school. I love it but I do so knowing there might be a day that I need to leave. Whether it's voluntary or involuntary, that's a thing that could happen. And so what I'm building isn't my thing. It's part of the school system. It's part of this district. It's something that I want to make sustainable. Should I not be here anymore at some point? And I want to spend extra time investing in me. So when I'm at work and I'm doing my job, I want to do you know 100%. I'm on board. I'm doing the best job I can. But if we're talking about it's Saturday and I could spend Saturday you know, doing something better to build my school program or I could be building my YouTube channel, I'm gonna pick my own thing. I'm going to invest in myself. It's one of the reasons I never went into like a management role or even when I worked at the TV station, there was one time that they wanted to offer me a salaried position that was $30,000 a year and I was at the time making $12,000 a year. So it was a huge jump up. And I just said no, because they also wouldn't work with my school schedule. So it was kind of like, hey, quit school and work here for 30000 a year. Or, you know, you might need to just stop working here. And I chose school because the thing about education, I have an English degree, which is often made fun of as being a useless degree. But nobody can take it away. I have that degree. I have invested in myself. You know, those art skills from Trader Joe's, yes, I use those skills to help with marketing and and design at Trader Joe's, but the skills to do that stuff live with me and go with me wherever I go. That is an investment in me. You know, everything with YouTube, one of the reasons I started the channel is because it's my own thing. So the time, energy, and effort that I put into it is my own thing. It's an investment in myself. And I have just seen so many people end up so heartbroken and in such terrible positions when they invest themselves in somebody else's thing and it doesn't work out and then they lose so so much and i think it is always wise to invest in yourself first however that looks in what you do you need to invest in yourself and having gone through that trader joe's experience especially i was in my 20s at the time that was when i really learned okay these career choices that I'm making, these personal decisions, they all need to be things I'm more than happy. I love contributing to a team. I love being part of a group and organization, but everything I'm doing needs to be something that's going to benefit me because when push comes to shove, there's no manager or supervisor that's going to like, you know, sacrifice something on their end to save you or me they're going to save themselves and will get pushed out to the curb pretty quickly. So the thing to do is invest in yourself and grow from there. And that was a huge lesson to learn. So those are my three stories, kind of all over the place. But the idea of jumping in maybe before you're ready and having the confidence to just figure it out, putting yourself out there and feeling like you have something valid to share and making sure you invest in yourself, those are really important lessons that have not only helped me just personally in life, but also, you know, creating YouTube content, podcasts, all that stuff online, surviving that, navigating that over the past three years has been hugely helpful. So I wanted to make sure to share those because hopefully they're also kind of entertaining stories. And I wanted to share those with you because maybe you can relate, maybe you can glean some sort of helpful info from them, and or at least maybe even be motivated to, to learn something, put that into play. And, Get started on your own thing today. And with that being said, getting started, speaking of that, we have a great treat to start off this season, which is a voice message. So this is a very quick voice message, but I've been asking for people to reach out, leave voice messages. So this is from Amber and Art Castillo via anchor.fm slash enthusiasm. Love your show, man. It's awesome. Uh, Completely different than our show, but... Awesome nonetheless, bro. This is coming from the Cast Ascendancy podcast. So thank you guys for leaving that message. There's not a whole lot to respond to other than thank you. It's so pleasant to to get those messages. I don't know if you left me that with the intention of me sharing it on here or not. But I want to share it because I want to show how easy it is to just anchor.fm slash enthusiasm. Click leave a message. You just talk straight into your phone if you don't have a fancy roadcaster set up and you can leave a message. Um, If you wanna talk about something specific, if you don't know what you wanna say, I appreciate nice little messages like that, but we could stay on topic. And today's theme, stories, lessons learned. If you have any thoughts about the stories that I shared today, or you have any lessons that you've learned, or you can concisely, much more concisely than I can, share a quick story and what you learned from it, I would love to hear that. So feel free to reach out, leave that message. I can put that in next week's episode. We can kinda continue the discussion as we move forward in to season three of this podcast. Can you believe that? Season friggin' three. And just like seasons one and two, my sweet royalty-free lo-fi beats mean that it is time for gear of the week, which is a great way to just wrap up the show by talking about something I'm excited about that I've been using a lot this week that I think will add value to other people who are interested in video production and gear and that sort of stuff. So one thing that I've gotten, if you saw on my YouTube channel a while back, I made a video all about C stands, which are the stands that can hold lights and microphones and cameras. And just, they're just the most versatile like stand you can find on a TV set, a film set in a production gear setup. They're just these big, heavy chunks of metal that last forever and can do so much. So I did a whole video on one um, and how I use it in my studio and I love it. And I bought a second one this week, but I bought a slightly different one. The one I bought is a Flashpoint brand C-Stand from Adorama.com, so I'll put a link in the show notes to this. Um, but basically that's a little bit less expensive than the one that I got before, which was from b Photo. But the thing I like about the Flashpoint C-Stand, it is a little more lightweight. So it's still a huge hunk of metal. And if you've never used one before, you're going to get it and go like, oh my God, this thing is like ridiculous. It's crazy. The shipping's not a million dollars because it's so heavy, but it is lighter weight than the other C-stand or like a, a Matthews brand C-stand would be. But it's also less expensive. I think I was able to get it for about 120-ish dollars somewhere in there. But the, the reason I like it is it has a few cool features for C-stands. One, it's spring loaded. So that means that these big hunks of metal can't smash your fingers as easily as normal. And that has been very nice (laughs) because if you use C-Stands, it's very easy to pinch yourself and hurt yourself on them. And this kind of protects you from that, which is really nice. But the big thing is this comes with a lot of mounts and accessories. It comes with like a little baby pin, which makes it easy to mount lights in different positions on the C-Stand. One of the Gobo arms, which is like this big, or not arms, uh, mounts, one of the Gobo mounts, It's like a big circular thing with holes in it. You can put all kinds of different gear in there, microphones and lights and clamps and whatevers. Um, One of them is fully like free, so you can position it wherever you want along the arm. It comes with an arm. I got this one specifically because the arm has um, built in quarter 20 and three eighths inch mounts on the end of it. So without needing any other adapters, you can screw a camera directly onto the arm of the C-stand and use it for overhead shots, which is exactly what I bought it for because it's a great overhead rig. And I actually ended up putting a ball mount for my old GorillaPod on it so I can position the camera a little better. And even though I have a little overhead rig that I use, this allows me to get taller, like higher shots wider shots and it actually takes up less space because sometimes when I film videos using my other overhead rig, it kind of has these these uh, black like legs, these stands that sort of end up framing me in the shot if I have like a talking head shot in addition to an overhead shot. I don't really like that. So the C stand kind of gets out of the way, puts the camera above me, keeps everything nice and clear and still gets an overhead shot in addition to just being super useful and versatile. So Highly recommend it. I learned about these two C stands specifically from a Tommy Callaway video. If you don't know who Tommy is, he has a YouTube channel. Focuses a lot on lighting and audio, but he does a comparison video. This might be like two years old. It's between these two C stands and it's what sold me on them. So I'll link to that too in the show notes because his channel is great and that video is super helpful. C-Stands might not sound like the most exciting thing in the world, but once you see it for yourself, you will understand why the C-Stand is so great. I am so not sorry about that terrible joke. So I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you've learned a bit. I'm excited to jump into Season 3. See you next week. You can reach out to me, of course. I'm at SodarnTom on all of the things. YouTube Enthusiasm Project, as always. Uh, Feel free, again, leave a voice message, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, your life lessons in next week's episodes. Please stay safe, have fun, and I will see you next time.